if I were to ask you what are the qualities or activities of a wise person, what would you say? What kinds of things would be on your list? If the sentence goes like this, a wise person is, how would you complete that sentence? Or a wise person does what? Or a wise person behaves thus and so. How would you complete those sentences? What would you say? I just want you to think of a few things that you would think of as the qualities and behavior of a wise person. What if I said to you this, a wise person sings. A wise person sings. Would you have thought that singing was an essential activity of the wise person? I confess to you, I'm saying it to you like this because that's not how I think of it. In fact, I find the, the presence of singing on the list of things a wise person does kind of surprising. But that is what the Scripture says. It's in this text in Ephesians chapter 5. Look carefully then how you walk. That's Ephesians 5.15. Not as unwise, but as wise. Making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord in your heart or with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. So there in the middle of this description of what it is to walk as wise is addressing one another with singing and singing and making melody to the Lord. Apparently, singing is an important aspect of wisdom. That's an interesting thing to think about. Wise people sing. Now, I'm getting a little ahead of myself, and we started talking about how to walk as wise a couple weeks ago, and we've already gone over a good part of this text Look carefully, we started with. That is, keep your eyes open. 
Look carefully to how you walk. Pay attention to how you live your life. Here's an unwise way to live. Not paying attention. Have you noticed that a lot of people don't pay particular attention to how they live? It's kind of common, really. We just go about it. We do what presents itself. We live kind of in reaction to the world around us. Whatever happens, we kind of maybe respond to. But the Scripture says, pay attention to how you walk. Walk as wise, not as unwise. And then it says, uh, <clears throat> making the best use of the time. Because the days are evil. So, we're supposed to seize the moment for the sake of goodness. We're supposed to, by paying attention, see the opportunities around us in the relationships we have with others for bringing grace into this or that situation, whatever it is. And so we said we want to seize the moment to reverse the nature of the moment because the days are evil. The natural tendency is downward and we are supposed to have our eyes open and watch for opportunities to reverse that trend. To be the one who brings goodness into whatever situation we're looking at. That's wise. Now, we should also notice that when the Bible talks about wise, it says the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. So all real wisdom has its feet firmly planted in the appreciation of God's own godness. That God is God. That sort of awesome, earth-shaking God and the recognition of that God. I'm reminded of like the book of Isaiah, you know, where Isaiah has a vision and he visits heaven and the angels are shouting, holy, holy, holy is the Lord and they never stop. And Isaiah's reaction is, ah, get me out of here. This this recognition like we sang in that first song, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That proper appreciation of God's own godness is the beginning of wisdom. That's quite a declaration. In other words, whatever I do that's not grounded in that somehow is less wise than it might otherwise be. So, the foundation of real wisdom is built in that true orientation toward God. A right connection to Him. And then it takes advantage of its opportunities. It has its eyes open. It sees the world around. It sees the people around. And it seizes the moment to reverse the regular going on evil around. To be the source of the love of Christ. 
Well, I don't think you're going to do that unless you're pretty well connected to the love of Christ. Unless you are a child of light, as we read earlier in this chapter. Unless you are walking in that fear of the Lord, you're going to have a hard time expressing the love of the Lord to the people around you. Then we read a whole list of qualities of wise people from the book of James last time. I'm, we, won't, we don't need to go over that again. But wisdom is opportunity-seeking. That's what we mean when we say making wise use of the time. Wisdom is looking for an opportunity for goodness. I've, I, I just want to share with you that this idea is, uh, is like a getting a hold of my mind so that I'm trying, whenever I'm going to be around anyone or in any situation in my life, I'm trying to remember to ask myself the question, can I reflect the love of God into this situation? Can I be an exhibit of His grace? And of course, that involves communicating the Gospel, but it can involve any number of ways in which a person might bring some goodness into this dark world. And that the Bible describes as wise. The smart people are the people who are looking to bring goodness wherever they go. The goodness that they know in Christ. Then he goes on. He He repeats himself, Therefore do not be foolish, but... So he's giving you now what's wise as opposed to what's foolish. Don't be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. Understand what God desires. Oh. So it is foolish. It is foolish to be ignorant of God's desires. That is a very important thing to notice. If you are going through your life with no consideration for what God says, you're dumb. Foolish. Stupid. To use a kind of harsh word. You will be blundering. You will be doing things unwisely if you do not consider carefully what the will of the Lord is. This makes me think, I need to understand what God says. I need to be a student of God. I need to know Him. You know how a married couple 
that's been married for, you know, a hundred years. However long. A long time. The longer they're married, and the longer they're married in a sort of good relationship, let's say, the less they each have to say this, well, I need to check with my wife. They just don't need to check with their wife. They already know what she thinks. And they're not ignoring what she thinks. They just already know it. They're carefully considering it all the time, and that's how they know it so well after many years of being together. As you get to know a person, as you, uh, like a child with their parents, a teenager knows when he or she is doing something that could get them in trouble with their parents. They know. Now, they might ignore what they know, but they know. And what we're talking about is building up a relationship with God in such a way that I come to understand what the will of God is in any particular situation. I build up a skill. This is uh, in, in Hebrews chapter 5. Who, who by constant practice have learned... These are mature believers. By constant practice they've learned how to discern between good and not good. What the will of the Lord is. Or it's Romans 12, verse 2, be transformed by the renewing of your mind so that you will be able. In other words, you will have built an ability to test and see, discern, what is God's will. If you live your life in constant reference to God's Word, and you are practicing the day-by-day application of the Lord's will in your life, it's a skill. You get better at it. And if you are spending time with the Lord, learning who He is, with His people, learning who He is, then you become attuned wise. Wise people understand what God desires. You become, let's say, theologically discerning. You become more and more able to know when somebody's telling you something and they're sort of saying the Bible says and you know that's not what it says. You develop the skill of understanding what the will of God is. The next thing he says is, and do not, have you noticed that there's a do not and a corresponding do? So, wise people do not get drunk with wine. Now, here's how a lot of Christians uh, read this verse. This is a rule against ever being drunk. 
So we get out the Ten Commandments and we add an eleventh one. Do not ever get drunk. I would like to suggest to you that there is more to this than that. That this is in a paragraph about how to live wisely. And so, do not get drunk has an alternative. Be filled. Be filled. So, when he says don't get drunk, he says because that's debauchery. In other words, that is really foolish. It's so foolish, you could call it sinfully foolish. Drunkenness. And I guess I would want to say more than that, I would want to say don't waste opportunities with pointless nonsense like getting drunk. And so I could add a lot of things to that list. There's a lot of pointless nonsense in this world that you could engage in and you wouldn't ever have to have a drink. But drinking for the sake of drinking is one of them. I am not a person, I am not personally a teetotaler. I am not a person who thinks to ever allow any alcohol down your throat is a sin. I don't believe that. I do believe that drinking for its own sake is really stupid. And is just really wasting opportunity with pointless nonsense. Don't do that. That's foolish. Why not do that? It's fun. Why not do it? Well, because of all the opportunity you will miss because you're busy with pointless nonsense. That's why. So what he says is the alternative. That's foolish. What's wise? What's wise? Be filled. Be filled. Now we need to think about what filling is about in the book of Ephesians. In the book of Ephesians, what is filling about? Because it's kind of a theme. And if you look at chapter 1, the end of chapter 1, we read this, and he put all things under his feet. That is, the Father put all things under the feet of the Son and gave him as head over all things to the church. So the Father gave the Son to the church as our head. Okay? To the church, which is his body. So we are identified in the book of Ephesians as the body of Christ. And then he says this, the church, his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. So the church is described by the book of Ephesians as the fullness of God. The God who fills everyone with everything. Wow. 
Do you realize that the fellowship of the Christian people is that big of a deal? Because here's what we do. We tend to think of the filling that we're talking about in chapter 5 as something that happens to me individually, but that wouldn't be a good reading in the context of Ephesians. It's something that we have, something that we receive, this filling, so that we can be described as the fullness, the, pe- the full people of God. Wow. That's almost hard to believe, especially if you look around at people in the church. Really? Well, then in chapter 3, we have this other thing that happens where Paul prays for the church. He says, For this reason I bow my knees before the Father, from whom the whole family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of His glory, He may grant you to be strengthened with power through His Spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith. That you be now we might ask the question, what is it we're being filled with? Just think of that. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may have strength to comprehend with all the saints, not just on your own, with all the saints. What is the breadth and length and height and depth to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God? So if we ask the question, what is it we're filled with? Well, Christ occupies our hearts through faith. And in the occupation of our hearts by Christ through faith, and our corresponding comprehension of His love, which is too vast for us to ever know, but still we know, as we comprehend His love, we are filled... What did that say? With all the fullness of God. If we possess Christ, all the fullness of God is filling us. And we might notice this is something that is enabled in us by the Spirit. So we have uh, the whole Trinity involved here. God grants, the Father grants, that the Spirit would work, that Christ would come to dwell in us through faith, that we would understand the greatness, the incomprehensible love of Christ, and so be filled to all the fullness, and so realize what he said in chapter 1. That the church, the body, his body, that he's the head of, is the fullness of God in him. Oh, so this filling is kind of a big deal in, here in the book of Ephesians. In chapter 4, we have more. He who descended is the one who... Who's that? Oh, that's Jesus. He who descended is the one who ascended far above all the heavens 
that he might fill all things. That he might fill all things. Where does the where is the fullness? It's in the person of Jesus Christ, the eternal Son, made flesh, given as a sacrifice for sin, risen, ascended, seated at the right hand, planning to come again and rule. That one is, well, the fullness. He ascended in order to fill all things. Christ is the one who totally occupies everything. Hmm. So what is the thing getting that things are getting filled with? Well, the text goes on. He says there's more here in chapter 4. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry the work of serving in the body for the building up of the body, which we already know from chapter 1 and chapter 3 is the fullness of God. Okay. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge. So there's a unity we're attaining to, and it's a unity of faith and knowledge of the Son of God to one mature man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. What is the thing we are being filled with? Christ. Christ. <clears throat> now here in, e in Ephesians chapter 5, in this verse we just read, I notice, we notice that being uh, drunk is foolish, and instead of that, be filled. And then what does it say? In this translation, it says, be filled with the Spirit. Now, I would like to suggest to you that the language that is used in this text is a little different from the language that is commonly used, say, in the book of Acts, where people full of the Spirit, it says, do this, that, or the other miraculous thing. This doesn't use the same kind of language. In fact, the literal language here is be filled in the Spirit. So we might say the Spirit is like the agency of this, the agent of this filling, the one doing the filling, but the thing He's filling us with is Christ. So that we become the fullness of Christ. The one new man in Christ with the head Christ and the body of Christ, the identification of Jesus Christ is upon us by this filling. And so what he's saying is, be Christ. Which is totally fitting in the context of the book of Ephesians. If you just read that section about chapter 4, what is it we're growing into as the church? We're growing into one new man. And who is the one new man? Christ. Christ, when He died on the cross in chapter 2, He reconciled us together, Jews and Gentiles, in one body. Creating one new man. Same expression as in chapter 4. One new man. And who is that man? Christ. 
He Himself, chapter 2 said, is our peace. So we are being filled in the Spirit. And I think when he talks about us being filled here in chapter 5, it's kind of a summary statement of all he said about this filling already in the book of Ephesians. This is a central feature of life in the body of Christ. Now, how is this connected with wisdom? How is this walking as wise to be filled? To be the fullness of God in Christ. To be the recipients of this strengthening ministry of the third person of the triune God, the Holy Spirit Himself, dwells in and among us in order to strengthen us so that we are totally occupied by the Savior Jesus Christ. How's this connected with wise? The idea here is that we, together with all the saints, this is something you cannot do by yourself. Because by definition, it is a thing done by the us of us. It is a work done by God in the us of us. And this certainly does involve His operation in each of us, but the point is the oneness of us. This is why the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace by our our being eager to maintain the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace is the summarizing commandment of the whole book of Ephesians. Here, the idea is that together with all the saints, we would be completely caught up in, totally occupied by our reconciliation with God in Christ by the Spirit. That we would live as the fullness of God together in the world. The definition of walking as wise. As we mentioned, wisdom begins in relation to God. And relation to God is entirely in Christ. There is no other relation to God other than enemy. The only relation to God that we can possess is in Christ, our reconciling Savior, who reconciles us to be one body and reconciles that body as one body to the Father. So it's foolish to ignore this reality. To walk as wise is to get together with us in order to be Christ in the world. Is that plain? It's for us 
to strive together to be Christ in the world. Sometimes this means you representing Christ in the world all by your lonesome. Sometimes that happens. And when that happens, you need an us behind you. You need an us in your heart. You need to be one of us to be good at being us by yourself. Did that make any sense at all? (laughs) I got some pronouns going on there. But here's the thing. This is a thing we engage in as the body. As the body. Here is my growing conviction. Christians in the world today universally underestimate the significance of our fellowship with the other Christians. We just don't think it's as important as it actually is. Some of us ignore it all together. Unwise. Now, he goes on to talk about what filling of the, the filling of the Spirit, this filling with Christ by the ministry of the Spirit, how does that work? Now, I just want you to pay attention to the structure of the language of this sentence. He says, Being, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. Oh, so addressing one another is an aspect of being filled with Christ by the Spirit. So how, do, how am I filled? How are you filled? We are filled in our addressing of one another, in the operation of the Spirit as we address one another. Well, I mean, we all know that. We, we've experienced that. We've seen how one of us can speak in, into another one of us the words of God or the basic nature of God's grace and, we, and be an encouragement or how one of us can just exhibit some simple sacrifice of love that helps another one of us. We understand that the operation, how we address one another has an impact. How it brings actually the ministry of the Spirit. My ministry to you is not just me. The Lord operates in our relationships with each other. And when someone comes in here and cleans the place or sets up the chairs and nobody knows... God does. And they're serving the body. The ministry of the Spirit in the life of that person is building us up in the filling of Christ. Even the simplest seemingly menial task done in loving service as an expression of joyful gratitude to the Savior as a reflection of the grace of God no matter how trivial it might seem, is building up the fullness of God in the life of the church. And it's doing so because the Spirit is at work in the life of the church and in the life of each person in the church. 
so addressing one another. Oh, except this has something specific in mind. <laughs> it doesn't just say addressing one another. It could have. It could have just said, be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another. But it says, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Oh, I'm supposed to sing to you. And you're supposed to sing to me. And we're supposed to sing to one another. And we are supposed to address one another in this way. In the passage we read in Colossians, it says, teaching and admonishing one another with songs, hymns, and spiritual songs. I don't know if you noticed that what we were doing when we were singing earlier is, was teaching and admonishing one another. There's been a, there has been a trend. I don't think it's that big of a deal anymore, but there was a trend in worship service planning to say, oh, this is just between me and the Lord. It's just between you and the Lord. Just sing to the Lord from your heart. Just sing to the Lord. And I think, well, no, in the Bible, singing in church is never just between me and the Lord. Why would I need to go to church? Singing in the Scripture is to one another and to the Lord. It's in the next phrase. But we're addressing, we're not, I'm, and I'm not just singing so that you'll get in a good mood or so that we will enjoy the tune sharing. The world does that, right? I mean, there's a football game and everyone's singing their praise of their team. What we're doing is something more than that. We're teaching, admonishing, addressing one another in the wisdom of the Spirit. And the wisdom of the Spirit is to be fully occupied by Christ. So, speaking to one another in psalms, hymns, spiritual songs. Spiritual songs. Songs activated by the Holy Spirit. So when you come in here on a Sunday morning and we sing together, I want you to try to remember. I know, right? Try to remember. I want you to try to remember you are not singing for your own sake. You're singing for our sake. And the words we sing are meant to encourage, to build up, to edify the body not just each one of us. Then he says, singing and making music to the Lord in your heart. Is not music the strangest thing? What on earth? Music. Do you know that the Scripture says the Lord sings over His people? Do you know that God Himself, the triune God, is something like a chorus? And that our musical nature, which is universal in humanity, is a reflection of His image in us. And so we sing and we sing to one another and we sing from our heart to Him with one voice. It's very important that we sing. 
There's a lot. If you look at the list of things you're supposed to do when Christians get together for worship, it's a short list. And this is on it. Sing. Because just talking isn't enough. You gotta talk. You gotta have the explanation. You gotta understand. You have to process. You gotta have logic and sentences and stru- all that. But the thing we're talking about is a singing thing. A singing thing. Then he says, giving thanks always and for everything to God. <laughs> Giving thanks to God the Father in the name of Jesus. We come to God in Christ. That's the only way. And what we're doing now, because we've been given everything in Him, all we can do is give thanks. When we come to the table, it's the Eucharist, the thanksgiving, the good grace saying. It's only that because... We can't provide God with anything. He has provided us with everything. So he says, give thanks to God in the name of Christ. And of course, this is all in the operation of the Spirit. And then he has this annoying thing to say. (laughs) Did you catch it? Always. And for everything. There are some things that go on, things that happen, things that happen to me that don't seem like opportunities for thanksgiving. But he says always for everything. There's always a recognition of the goodness of God in the heart of a Christian. In the heart of one who is full of Christ. Think of Christ Himself who for the joy set before Him endured the cross. Christ Himself thanks God for the cross. Whatever you've got that involves suffering for the sake of another, you can be thankful. Whatever happens to you, you can be thankful because you have the promise of God that even the bad things that happen to you, and they're truly bad, even the bad things that happen to you, He will make good. He will produce something from that that is beyond worth it. So that in the end, you will say, thank you for that. And I know there is some horrible stuff in the world. So we have a question. Do we believe in the goodness of God? The only right answer to that is, well, Jesus did die for us. So yes, we believe in His goodness. So I'm thankful all the time. And the last thing, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. (laughs) We're back to the beginning of wisdom here at the end. Reverence. Fear of the Lord is the beginning and the end of wisdom. But here, what am I called upon to do? What is the wise thing? Submit to you. Here's, uh, it's a very simple idea. It says, in the, ra- in the ranking of importance, put yourself under the others. 
Oh, so it's just act like Jesus. Who, though he was God Almighty, emptied himself and became one of us, and as one of us, humbled himself, humbled himself, humbled himself, until he was actually in last place. Crucified for our sake. So we have an opportunity to exhibit the wisdom of Christ in this way, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. This is wisdom. This is a life that is lived in celebration of our new life in Christ. Reconciled to God, reconciled to one another. This is wisdom. To walk in wisdom is to exhibit the fullness of Christ by faith. When we come to the table, it is coming to receive It's a reminder of God's overflowing goodness to us. It's, I don't bring anything. I don't bring anything. I just come to the cross of Christ. Father, thank You. Thank You for this amazing grace. Help us to see the wisdom of it, to live, to walk in this wisdom that comes from You. So, Father, we do pray for the ministry of the Spirit in us. Strengthen us to be totally occupied by Christ and together to be a reflection of Him in this world. Help us to be this wise, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.